Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. We are covering um, October 2021 this time and we have a range of different things. We've got some good news and some bad news on human rights. We've got some fairly consistently good news on asylum, which is sort of nice for a change. We've got quite a few business immigration things to run over quickly with you. And then we're going to turn at the end to Priti Patel's Conservative Party conference speech briefly and the International Law of the Sea for a nice depressing ending to this month's podcast. If you'd like to claim CPD points for um, listening to the podcast and reading the material and so on, then we can we can help you with that. We've got a, a training course that we do every month. Uh, you answer a few questions and it's evidence that you are keeping yourself up to date. So head over to freemovements.org.uk slash training and you can see all the details there. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. Let's start with the good news on human rights. People aged 18 to 24 who have lived half their life in the UK can get permission to stay to regularise their immigration status. That's one of the existing rules that derives from people's human right to a private life. But at the moment, if you get permission to stay under this half of life rule, it's only temporary permission and you can't get settlements and then proceed to citizenship for 10 whole years. So that means that many young people who've arrived in the UK really young or maybe even born here, speak with British accents and everything, they end up on this 10-year pathway to settlements and have to pay loads of money to renew their permission every two and a half years, and it sucks. But the good news is that we now have a home office concession for people in this position, and it says that they can potentially get settlement after five years instead of being on this 10-year pathway. This concession isn't automatic, though. You'll have to request it, and caseworkers will take a look at various factors that are set out in the concession document. So how long you've lived in the UK in total, how young you were when you arrived, any unlawful residence that was your fault rather than your parents' fault, uh, various things like that. But potentially a really big opportunity for young people who are on this half-of-life route uh, to settle after five years rather than ten. Yeah, and, and it's it's really good news in that sense. But I, I, there are big problems with this as well. I mean, one is that this is, you know, why is this not in the rules, basically? This is like going back to the, the 90s, uh, where there were a load of concessions that were outside the immigration rules. And the, the problem with having a concession outside the immigration rules is that not everybody knows about it. You know, it's, um, it's something that's really not transparent. It's not clear. It's perfectly possible to have in the rules various different discretionary factors. So that's not the thing that's stopping it from being put into the rules. I suspect it's more to do with this kind of home office obsession with five years if you're a migrant that we like, that you meet the normal rules as as, as defined by the home office, whereas it's 10 years if you if we don't like you very much, but we've got to let you stay. And, and for some stupid reason, um, kids in this position somehow fall into the latter category for the home office and they're not they're not changing that at this point. Um, hopefully, you know, this is just the first step and we'll see this properly built into the rules, maybe even a, a review of the kind of five-year, 10-year um, approach for different, different routes, this route and different routes, but um, I'm not holding my breath. The concession seems to have come about following legal action involving the Migrant and Refugee Children's Legal Unit at Islington Law Centre. So perhaps they will press further legal action to uh, improve things further. Um, We have linked to a detailed legal note from them uh, about this concession, and you can access that via our piece on the website. Next, an important decision on when an immigration application comes with a right of appeal to a judge. 
the issue is that you only trigger a right of appeal if you make a human rights-based application for a permission to stay. And so what people often do is they mention human rights issues in a non-human rights-y application to try and trigger an appeal if they're refused. The Home Office doesn't like this. It's taken to saying, no, you have to choose one or the other. If you have a human rights case, then fill in a human rights application. That stance has been backed by the Immigration Tribunal recently, and now the Court of Appeal has back to the Home Office approach to this. That's the case of MY Pakistan 2021 EWCA Civ 1500. Yeah, it's it, it's a shame this one. And it, it's hard to see that the law really mandated this outcome. Um, it's the sort of situation where you can imagine the courts having gone either way, either way on it. And it's, um, it's another example of where the Home Office just seemed to be as I've said this before, not quite their worst own men- enemy, but um, yeah, you're not far off it. It's, it's, I think, why are they forcing people to make repeat immigration applications? What's the kind of public policy benefit of that other than sort of a knee-jerk hostility to migrants just to make their lives really inconvenient and difficulty at some expense to the Home Office? Because, you know, the person fails in their initial application, they can then make another application. There are already huge delays, huge backlogs, the kind of resource implications of that are, are, are massive. Um, so it, it's a policy that doesn't really make any sense, I, I, I don't think, for what that's worth. Asylum then, we have, first of all, a big case on victims of human trafficking If you tell the Home Office that you've been trafficked into the UK, they will put you in the trafficking support system while they assess that claim. But if you've claimed asylum as well as raising trafficking, they won't give you any proper immigration status until that asylum claim is decided. So what that amounts to is if you're a trafficking victim who has also claimed asylum, as many people do, uh, you can't work which is tough. And what people want is to be considered for a grant of temporary permission so that they can work, even though they're also in the asylum process. And Mr. Justice Linden says, yes, that's what should happen, according to the relevant international treaty, which has effect in domestic law for reasons that are probably out of scope for a podcast, which is good because I don't understand them anyway, but something to do with the previous case of PK Ghana uh, means that that treaty can bite in, in UK law. So Colin, you may know more about the legal reasoning or perhaps what this means in practice for trafficking victims. Yeah, it's an it's quite a hot topic actually. Sort of international conventions and how far they bite in domestic law, and the fact is that they don't normally. But because the Home Office has um, conceded previously that they intended to incorporate this particular treaty by means of a policy, the policy is therefore read as if it reflects the legislation. So, um, you, as if the, it reflects the convention. Sorry. So you can go to the convention as a kind of source of law in, in effect on this. Whether that continues to be the case i'm not sure um the um you know supreme court has been quite skeptical recently on on this sort of thing um so i don't know it might not be might not be the um might not be the end of this particular story but it's an interesting case because you know we see these kind of press releases and sometimes mainstream media stories about um you know victory on x policy against such and such against the home office or whatever and um you know a, a casual reader might well think that Therefore, you know, all asylum seekers can work. It's sort of jump ahead slightly to the next the next item that we're going to be talking about, or something like that. And actually, it's quite a narrow victory 
And the, the, all the Home Office has to do is reissue the same policy in very slightly different terms, affecting a tiny number of people. Whereas this one's not of that nature. This one is actually a really significant victory, um, genuinely affecting a lot of um, victims of trafficking. It's, it's hard to see how the Home Office would really limit this to a few people because it's essentially about the sequencing of uh, trafficking and asylum cases and the significance of that and what happens to somebody um, in the meantime while their asylum case is being is being considered where they have put forward a trafficking claim they have been found to be a victim of trafficking so it it looks to me like a a, a really significant victory perhaps unlike the the next one sort of lead on to the, the next item yeah, good foreshadowing. This next one is another of these cases on the ban on asylum seekers working. There has been a couple of cases finding that policy unlawful with limited effect, as you say. Now the High Court, uh, Mr. Justice Linden, again, has declared that the policy fails to comply with the duty to promote the best interest of children. Uh, because children are bound to be affected by their parents being banned from work effectively. The cases are Cardona and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2021 EWHC 2656 admin. But I don't think that therefore means that all asylum seekers with children can work all of a sudden. No, and this is you know the latest in a string of um, challenges to that policy. Um, and the, the difference here is that um, you know there isn't uh, a clear right in international law for a person seeking asylum to be allowed to work. And even if there was, it's not incorporated into domestic law anyway. You know, refugee convention isn't properly domestic, um, incorporated into domestic law. Um, and therefore, you can't hang a kind of big, meaty challenge to the substance of the policy off any kind of peg like that. You can bring challenges to aspects of the policy. And this is another one of those that succeeded. Basically, the Home Office was directing its caseworkers to assume that um, this sort of issue of whether a asylum seeker has a right to work doesn't have an impact on a child, whereas the, the court said, well, actually, they, they shouldn't assume that. They have to assess it on a case-by-case basis. Um, so, you know, I, I, it, it's interesting. There, there are some, some arguments um, about, for example, the Refugee Convention rights of refugees. You know, we, we often only look at the uh, Article 1 requirements of the Refugee Convention, but, for example, there is an article on on self-employment, which states that uh, refugees lawfully in the territory um, have a, a right to self-employment. There's arguments about what that means and so on, but ultimately it doesn't get us anywhere because it, it doesn't bite in domestic law. So you, you, as I say, you can't hang a challenge off it. So it's interesting sort of issues for, for like lawyers to debate, but not necessarily a good foundation for, for litigation, unfortunately. Finally, on asylum, a case on denial of medical treatment. That can be a reason for someone to get humanitarian protection status, which is similar to refugee status. But you would have to show that someone would be deliberately denying you access to healthcare in your country of origin. If you can't show that someone is persecuting you by kind of blocking you from getting medical treatment for a serious condition, and it's just that country conditions mean that treatment isn't available for you, uh, then you're not going to get humanitarian protection. You would need to rely on Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights instead. That is the finding in the upper tribunal case of NM Article 15B Intention Requirement Iraq 2021 UKUT 259 IAC. Yeah, this is another interesting one. Uh, it, it sort of it might initially be hard to see what the difference is because uh, either way, you don't get removed; you get permission to stay. 
But the terms on which you get permission to stay might be quite different depending on whether you get humanitarian protection or you're just barely protected from removal by Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Humanitarian protection comes with all sorts of additional rights, family reunion, rights to renewable um, residence permit for a certain period of time and things like that. Whereas Article 3 is literally, you can't be removed. It doesn't bring any other sort of associated rights with it as such. Um, and this is this is right at the kind of cutting edge of human rights um, refoulement litigation, where you've got this kind of divergence in approach between different Strasbourg cases in different situations. It's starting to converge, possibly, um, but you know you can see this kind of playing out with these kinds of um, determinations. So it's a it, yeah in, interesting legal issue, but and I say it, it it does have a real world impact. It's not just about well what's what's the difference between winning on one basis and the other. There is actually a, a an effect for the person concerned potentially. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, another interesting one in the Article 3 medical treatment line of cases. I wanted then to talk about the various temporary visa schemes that have been brought in for lorry drivers and such like. Um, what we had uh, sort of post-Brexit and all through the summer this year was the government saying that industries experiencing labour shortages should pay people more to attract staff, uh, domestic British uh, workers. Then they said, okay, well, fuel tanker drivers were really short of, so there'll be a concession at the border, 300 people allowed in by the 15th of October, so that's already been gone. Then they made an exception for food truck drivers. They can be recruited under the seasonal worker scheme until the 15th of November. Poultry workers, another exemption for them. Again, seasonal worker until the 1st of December. And then after that came out, the BBC ran a story from sort of senior government sources had briefed them very sternly saying, no more exceptions. You know, we really mean at this time, industry will just have to pay people more to attract uh, staff. No more foreign imports. Uh, and then a few days later, we had another exemption, which was pork butchers can also use the seasonal worker scheme uh, until the 31st of December. And I'm kind of obsessed with this. Uh, well, number one, because it's funny. Uh, but number two, from a policy perspective, it's interesting because a lot of these roles that have been allowed in uh, under the seasonal worker kind of light touch route, the butchers, some of the poultry workers, they could already get visas under the standard skilled worker route. So it's very much almost like an admission that, oh, well, if you really need foreign workers, we'll have to create a workaround because the skilled worker system we set up with great labor and expenses just kind of no good if it's important. And also because it's this sector by sector approach, it really seems to reward the sectors that have the best lobbyists and can get the air ministers to give them their own bespoke visa scheme. Yeah, it's a really strange time in immigration policy. It's kind of it's really hard to know what government immigration policy really is. I mean, you kind of get the impression it's less immigration, but but they don't seem to have thought through how that's really going to work. And when they they come out with all these lines about oh well, we're going to be a low immigration, high wage economy, you sort of get the feeling that that that's something they're very quite recently thought up as a kind of after the event justification for policy they were pursuing anyway without any real thought to how it was going to work and um these kind of you know u-turns and concessions that they're becoming increasingly known for sort of do seem to to back that up they're just making it up as they as they go basically without any real assessment of how this is going to work in the real world what the real world impact on the economy supply chains and so on is actually going to be um so yeah it's it's a really interesting time and maybe this really is the end maybe there will be no more concessions but it's a bit hard to believe given that that's what they've been saying all along 
I cheated on this podcast and went on another podcast which uh, asked me about this a couple of weeks ago and my tip for who would get uh, the next exemption was uh, care workers uh, because of the strains in that sector but uh, we shall see. Other work visa stuff, the Migration Advisory Committee has put out a report on the intercompany transfer visa. This is the route you might use if you are an Indian IT company sending someone from your Bangalore office to your Birmingham office. The person is staying within the same multinational company but transferring to the UK arm. The intercompany transfer route has become less popular recently, apparently because companies are finding it easier to just use the skilled worker route instead. The Mac suggests some changes to it to make it more uh, user-friendly, maybe. Uh, I think the main one really is that they recommend allowing people to apply for settlement after five years on intercompany transfer. So that would definitely make it more attractive. You don't have the risk of being here for four years and deciding you want to stay and you can't. Uh, We'll see if the Home Office act on that. Um, Joe Hunt has written uh, an overview of the Mac report and you can obviously read the Mac's full report. Yeah, interesting write-up. And um, I, I found it interesting to, to read that um, the intercompany thing was in decline because the skilled worker visa was actually a more attractive proposition now for companies. Um, so yeah, interesting to see that kind of playing out. Also, we mentioned a couple of episodes ago that the rules on the international sports person visa were being rewritten. Uh, that's now happened. And we have an article about it from Glyn Lloyd, who knows all about this industry. He's written a summary of the new rules. One interesting change he identifies within the old sports visas and this new version is that there's no longer an upper limit on time spent in the sports person route. So you can keep renewing indefinitely if you like. Much more analysis from him. If you Google international sports person visa, Glyn Lloyd, you'll find this article on the website. Finally then, channel crossings. On the day we're recording this, it's been reported that another person has drowned trying to cross from France in a small boat. Uh, A second person is missing. Pretty Patel spoke to the Conservative Party conference about this a couple of weeks ago, and she confirmed, I think for the first time officially, that new sea tactics are being trialed to turn back these boats and uh, border force officers on jet skis have been seen practicing whether they can physically turn boats around in the water and push them back towards France. And Colin, you've done a lot of work on looking into the legal considerations around these pushback tactics. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so I put together two briefings on this and it was partly because I was struggling to find anything on what the law of the sea actually is you know kind of you hear this being referenced but it's quite hard to find a a useful source that summarizes I spent an awful lot of time reading up on this to to sort of try and digest it and 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 make it sort of put it all in one place basically it's 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 quite interesting what Patel's suggesting first of all it I suspect it's just theatre. I suspect it's not really going to happen. And one of the reasons I suspect that is, you know, this is kind of being copied from other countries. But what actually happens in other countries, so for example, with the the US in the Caribbean, where they're taking back to people back to Cuba or to, to Haiti, they're they're not just pushing people back at sea and leaving them there. They're taking them somewhere. You, you, you can't just abandon people in the ocean. They'll, they'll die. Um, or if you see the same thing with Australia, you know, they're either pushing back 
right to a, a destination, uh, sorry, a source country, which, as with the US, this is you know, clearly in breach of the refugee convention and the, the obligation of non-refoulement, um, for example, taking them to Indonesia, or if they get beyond that and they're not sure where they started from, then taking them to a, a supposedly safe third country like Nauru or somewhere. And um, again, they're not just pushing them back, stopping them getting into Australian waters and then leaving them there. Um, they are taking them somewhere because you just you can't just leave people to drown. And it's not just a moral duty. It's not just morally obvious that you can't leave people to drown. It's an international law obligation as well. It's reflected in multiple treaties, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, the International Convention on, on Maritime Search and Rescue, um, the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea. It comes up in a couple of salvage conventions as well. And the UK is bound by these obligations. And in the second briefing, uh, it's also an obligation in UK law. So some of that international law duty of rescue at sea is actually incorporated into to British law by means of pretty obscure regulations. It's not actually in an act of parliament. It's in the, the merchant shipping brackets, safety of navigation, closed brackets, regulations 2020. And, and it's a criminal offence. The, the maximum sentence is two years to breach the duty of um, rescue of somebody who's in distress at sea. And a, a refugee who is in a small boat in the English Channel is is clearly in distress, you know, because the risk of, of something going wrong is very high in that kind of situation. So that's sort of very, very brief run through of, of um, the international law obligation, how it reflects in, in, in domestic law. So it's quite hard to see how you can just leave people in the channel or push them back towards France in those sorts of circumstances where you don't have a place to, to make sure they're safe, basically. Potentially because of those very legal obstacles that you identified, there's now a proposal in the borders bill that would give border force officials or immigration officials generally immunity if anyone were to die in the course of these operations. And we give uh, full credit to Adrian Berry for first writing about this, but uh, you got it into the newspapers after tweeting about us and explaining what was going on. Would that have the desired effect? Like if, you know, this, these jet ski operations were to happen and there was to be a catastrophe and someone were to drown, would this clause have the effect that the immigration officers involved would be immune from prosecution? It's doubtful. It's doubtful. I mean, the, the terms of the amendments to the legislation uh, include a couple of kind of provisos that the um, the person concerned, um, the immigration official, has to have acted in a way that was reasonable and in good faith. And it's hard to see how pushing back somebody at sea and not taking them somewhere could possibly be reasonable in the circumstances. Um, so, so it looks like you know an attempt to do it, but I'm not sure it's a serious attempt at immunity. And it, it seems more likely that it's it's kind of legislative theatre. It's kind of you know saying saying they're going to do things that they're not actually going to do. And you know you, you contrast what Pretty Patel is introducing into the legislation here with the border force officials on the ground who are actually you know performing search and rescue operations and saving people at sea. And it's really hard to believe that those same officials would actually act in a way that would endanger people out out in out in the English Channel that they're, they're doing the opposite of that at the moment you know they're working really hard to to rescue these people and to, to ensure that they're safe so I, I just don't I don't personally think that this is something that they're actually going to be able to to implement but I recognize that I might be wrong about that you know maybe they will find people who are willing to to leave refugees to drown I just I just don't think so 
Well, on that cheerful note, uh, we must end. I'll be back on the 26th of November with our next interview guests. We'll both be back in December for the next monthly update. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.